Hi everybody, it's Diane at the Sailing Legends Podcast and I have a great interview for you today. Remember that Sailing Legends Podcast is all about bringing the lore of the water and sailing and ocean to all of us so that we can remember the great times and learn the great lessons. I have an amazing, powerful woman with us today. You are going to love listening to her. Her name is Rachel Pryor. She is so cool. I've just spent some time interviewing her before we hit record and I want to know her more already. You are going to love the authority, the power, the confidence, and the amazing energy that this woman has. So Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so happy that I caught up with you here in your hotel room while you are taking an intensive course. You're taking the time out for the show, so I really appreciate it. I have the first question and then we'll go from there. And that is, tell everybody a little bit about how you developed your love for the water. Okay, well, there's a lot of different aspects that makes me love the water. Number one, I'm not an astrologer, but I am a water sign. So I am on the cusp between Capricorn and Aquarius, and I do feel like I'm drawn to the water. There's also the science aspect that everyone is made of 80% water. So we all inherently as human beings feel calm around the water. And then uh, when I was 10 years old, my family moved to South Florida. So as I grew up in my formative years, I was around water and I surfed with my friends in high school. We go to the beach all the time. And uh, since then, I've always just loved to be on and in the water. I love um, ever since I've been with my current job and getting scuba scuba certified, I love to be underneath the water and blowing bubbles and seeing fish in their natural habitat. I've always loved aquariums and my mom got me fish when I was little and she always, every time that I'm scuba diving, I always think of um, how my mom says that I always used to say, the beach, the beach, the beach, they liking me. And so it's just, I always think of my mom when I'm underwater. I'm And for everyone's awareness, my mom is here. So I'm thinking about her and that's why I'm smiling and then she's smiling at me back. So, <laughs> but yeah, I just, um, you know, there's something that's so calming about being around the water, whether it's watching the sunrise or the sunset, feeling the water and the sand underneath your toes, it kind of just grounds me. Oh, that's awesome. So if you're willing, share with everybody a little bit about what you do now and how that interplays with this great opportunity to have been on the water all this time. Like how did all this play out? Like you went to school, you have several degrees and Tell us a little bit about this trajectory because I think it's fascinating. Okay, so I got my undergraduate at the University of West Florida in Pensacola and my degree was environmental science. And then I went down to Miami to Florida International University and got a master's degree in their environmental studies department with a focus on ecotoxicology. So I studied toxins in the environment and how that affected fish and butterflies primarily. Then I went and I was an aquatic toxicologist as a temporary student service contractor with the EPA. So it was a non-renewable two-year contract working at the EPA in Pensacola, Florida. While I was there, my supervisor, she has done a lot of research on the former research vessel, the Bold, with the EPA and she um, 
She was really supportive of me going out and doing different volunteer opportunities. And so she led me to uh, match up with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I volunteered with them for two, uh, two nights doing sturgeon research in a local river habitat. And then I found on my own an opportunity to volunteer with Scripps Institution of Oceanography on their former research vessel, the New Horizon. And I did a 27-day leg with the Cow Coffee Project, which is a, also a NOAA project. Um, NOAA research boats do it as well. It's on the West Coast. And so that's when I stared out the ocean and I was like, this is for me. And so I worked as a volunteer scientist and then I went up to the bridge and I was constantly asking the captain, who I still talk to today, this was back in 2011, so about eight years ago, but I was like, what does that button do? What is that? Why do you do that? How do you do this? What is this world? And um, I also met a NOAA fisheries biologist who I worked with every day, um, and we talked and got to know each other. And so I was on this non-renewable contract with the EPA and I was like, and she was, she, she was talking to the, co the captain and she was like, she needs a job. And by when we were in maybe like nine foot seas and we're side two so, or we're beam two, so we're just like getting lifted and I was jumping up and down on the couch catching air. They're like, oh no, she's got the bug. This is for you. Or this whole science research, oceanographic research is for you. And so um, I... So they told me about NOAA Corps, National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration Commission Corps. It is a unicorn of a uniform service because nobody knows about it. And it's a corps of 321 officers that fly our NOAA's aircraft and also command their, um, their ships. So NOAA's 15 research vessels. And you go through a basic officer training course. You come out with a commission. We wear the Coast Guard uh, working uniforms and the Navy dress uniforms. And then you go and sail on, a, on your first ship for two years. You learn how to drive the ship. You learn how to deploy scientific gear and, re and recover it from the bridge. You also have a series of collateral duties. You learn everything about how you operate a ship from the environmental aspects of of disposing garbage while you're at sea, disposing food while you're at sea, disposing sewage while you're at sea, and that all that take that back to the land. You have to do it there too. It's like a moving building, but you have to manage everything that comes in and out of it. And so um, with the help of, of Sue Mannion, she's uh, now retired from NOAA Fisheries, and um, also the captain who is now the head of the Alaska Fishery Science Center. And um, with the help of those two, they kind of paved my way for my career now. Oh, that is fascinating. I just think that's the neatest thing ever. And I loved how excited you got when it was like all crazy out there because I've been out at sea when it's been really big waves and pitching and everything and people freaking out. And I was like loving it too. So I'm like, I knew I liked you. <laughs> but I have a question a little bit about the environmental part of it. Cause I am very concerned about our environment and our world. And I know some people who like literally cry every day for the oceans being killed by all the toxins in the environment and everything. 
do, do you ever feel really sad about what's going on or is everything just blown up and we shouldn't be as concerned? Well, I'm not the scientist part of it. So I don't do the analysis of the information that we collect, but NOAA as an organization takes out scientists that are government, academic. We take out um, uh, foreign academics as well. And there's just the, they really do take the pulse of the planet because they're taking oceanographic research, atmospheric research, and then they go back to their lab, study it, put it on papers. My aspect of it is I'm the bus driver that takes them to where they want to go. Mm -hmm. And so I do get down there and talk to the scientists as much as possible. Like on um, my first ship, it was primarily out of the Gulf of Mexico. So there's a hypoxic zone that's right outside of where the Mississippi Delta is that just seems to keep on growing and growing and growing. And so that has implications on the environment down there. Okay, um, so let me interrupt you. What's yeah. a hypoxic zone? Oh, a hypoxic zone is w an area of the ocean that has limited to zero oxygen in it. So fish can't, fish uh, take in oxygen and they need um, b by like oxygen in the water. And in this area, there's no oxygen, so there's no fish. And um, that has implications on the fisheries down there. And so, um, but what I, what, I, what does make me very sad, and it does bring tears to my eyes, is when we're sailing next to balloons or garbage just floating all around. I mean, when we were in the Pacific Ocean, I've, we were in um, near the Marianas Islands, and there was just shoes, there was spoons. You knew that you were kind of close to land or in this eddy area when you'd see a lot of garbage. And that is the worst. I've never sailed next to the garbage patch, but I have, when you see a balloon in the water, that is really, really sad. Cause you know that that's somebody that released it, you know? Right, without any really understanding or concern or both for where it really lands and what really happens. Right. Yeah, that must be really sad. That would be really sad for me. And sometimes you can see just being out at sea and you're coming into port and just the haze over where you're coming into, that can be kind of sad too, because it's just yeah. so brown. It is. It's, it's, you just reminded me of something. Because I was raised in Sarasota, racing sailboats and sailing my whole life. And when I was young, we could see the Milky Way here, and there was no haze over anything. And now the haze over the Tampa Bay area is very thick and black, and because of the light pollution, you can't see mm -hmm. the Milky Way. And it's really sad for me, because I remember those old times going, wow, you know, when I get to be someplace and I get to see clean air and see things in a different way, I feel alive again, you know? So to me, it seems like, that's why I asked you the ecology question, because it just seems like, you're connected to the ecology of things and there's some evidence that gives us that things don't look so hot sometimes you know so i'm glad you're out there taking the scientists around so that they can help this dire situation well you know um you just spoke to two things the the stars and then feeling alive and if when i'm on land for a while and that first time that we're going out to sea and it's dark out and i have to go outside to go we take temperature every hour and we record it out on an outside thermometer for humidity and temperature. And every time I go out there and I look up and we're away from land and we're away from lights and the stars 
are so bright and it covers when you're looking whatever direction and that's when I'm like I'm constantly reminded I get to do this for a living I love my job I feel so small look at all these stars and I'm so happy right now oh, yeah that's my favorite and then and then if there is a shooting star I just like explode with happiness <laughs> <laughs> I love it because I love I still I love shooting stars oh me too it's like we're sisters and we didn't even know it. It's hilarious. <laughs> um, when, I, when I'm ocean racing at night, I will hope everyone goes to bed so they can leave me alone so I can be quiet and hear the, the wake of the boat and just look at all the stars everywhere and just be in that vibe. And it's just such joy to me. I just can't. There's no words for it. So I so, I so get it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's genius. So what's a really cool place that you've been? that you learned a lesson you weren't expecting to learn? Oh, man. Um, well, so I've been, so far, I was, I, with, with NOAA itself, I've, um, I've been in the Gulf of Mexico primarily, the up and down the seaboard of the, the East Coast from Maine to Miami, and I've also been to Australia and to Hawaii and through Panama Canal. And I've also been from uh, Kodiak to up in uh, the Arctic Circle and then back down. So I've been a lot of places. And um, I think that one of my, oh my gosh, well, in training, we went on the Coast Guard Cutter Eagle and the Royals, this is a sailing podcast, so I'll, I'll talk about sailing and not motorboats. But um, so the the Coast Guard Cutter Eagle is a training ship for the cadets and also the OC, also the OCS classes. And that's OCS's officer candidate school. And so the Royals is 150 feet up, up on top of the deck. Like it's from deck to top to that top sail. It's 150 feet up. And it was a very calm night, and we were going to be, um, I think we had to furrow the sails because weather was coming. And so it was dark, the mast lights shine down, They're, they kind of like shine down at you. And so it was a group of four of us and then a Coast Guard cutter, um, the Coast Guard enlisted that was kind of, that, that would come up with us and, and make sure that we were doing everything right. And that was probably the scariest moment of my life because you're climbing up, you're, we have clips and everything, but then once you get up to that last step where you, where you, you don't really have handholds anymore, you have to like kind of reach and go for it. Well, I do because I'm only 5'6", but the guy in front of me, I'll never forget him. I call him Cinnamon Stick. You know who you are. He'll never listen to this. But... He was, he was in front of me and he's so tall. So he was just like, oh, boom, boom, here I am. And I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> and so he, and the mast headlight was like blocking my ability to see where my handholds were because it's so bright and it's so dark all around you. And so he was guiding my hand movements and I was able to make it safely onto the yard arm, clip in. And then you just kind of hang over and you're looking down at 150 feet below you. And it was kind of beautiful in the way because it was so calm out. But then you're like, I'm so high right now and I've got to do work. 
and then I got to get back down and then I got to go back up again. And so, cause I had to do it twice. And, um, and so the first time, so we, the first one we did, everything was fine, made it back down. And they're like, okay, are you guys okay to do the second one? Cause we still got to go up and do the second mast. And I was like, yes. Okay. I survived that one. I can do this one. And so I, we went up, everything was fine. It was still really scary. I'm still very sweaty. My hands are shaking. I'm white knuckling everything, but we did it. And then we came back down and I swear to you, I've never felt such intense, immense accomplishment. And also now that I'm speaking to you, it's a great reminder because for I've forgotten about that memory, but it's a reminder that I can do anything. I put my mind to it. And then also like, having your shipmates, you know, leaning on somebody else when you have, when you need help. And I did something really cool. I don't know if I would do that again right now. I'm kind of like, I've kind of in my later years, uh, grown a little bit scared of heights, but <laughs> maybe if I had cinnamon, cinnamon stick with me, but it was, uh, I think that I learned a lot about teamwork and also just getting out of my own head and just doing it and then enjoying the moment while I was in there a hundred like at 150 feet up the deck and then coming back down and feeling this immense sense of joy that I had accomplished that and I would have never had that opportunity but taking the opportunity since it was presented to me and just going for it you know kind of being a yes I was a, I was a yes person for a, a long time I, I still am Most, That's mostly, so, mostly. <laughs> that is so cool you know and, and it and it's interesting because there's such a, a connection and camaraderie when we're, we're out on the water. Right. And everybody has everybody's back, whether it's, and it's not always spoken. It just is. It just happens. Like Cinnamon Stick just helped you. Yes. You know, you didn't have to like freak out. It didn't have to be a big thing or somebody else didn't have to order Cinnamon Stick to help you. No. It was a natural way of taking care of our own. And, and I tell everybody that land's a four-letter word, you know, and that I'd rather be on the water because there is that connection that's so much deeper that's unspoken that happens. And I'll bet you feel that with your team on your boats no matter where you are, right? Oh, yeah. I love, I love, my, I love the crew. I love the crew that I'm on now, that I'm sailing with now. I love my first ship. I still talk to people from my first ship. We all, you see each other every day. 24 hours a day you eat meals with them you are getting to know them you have to you know like the the stimulation is just on board i mean there's some tv and stuff but there's not it's not much i mean especially on the ship that i'm on now we go international there's no tv we don't have direct tv so it's all entertaining each other and sometimes it can get a little bit dysfunctional but i think i i this crew is one of the best crews that i've sailed with and they make me so happy and they all come together and work to get the science done and what they accomplish is just amazing and they make sacrifices they're away from their family they're away from doing things that they love on land but there's something about the water and the job that pulls them to keep them to keep them here and so um yeah i'm just i feel so fortunate to work with the with the people i work with today Oh, that's really amazing. So what is something that one of your co-teammate people has taught you? Um, oh my gosh, they teach me, they teach me so much. Cause, so one of them, uh, I love how his conversation is geared towards 
just having an argument, but not with any any power behind it. So he just sailed. He sailed around the world, Charleston to Charleston, but he swears that, that we have a flat Earth. And so, in the times of when you're sailing for 36 days at a time, you you run out of things to, to have a conversation about. But there's new ways that he brings out this argument, this like argument, and it's like. And it's fun. I find that very fun. So I think that one thing that he's t teaching is just like a creative way to have conversation when and just to keep your mind working. Because I feel like when you're on land, the four letter word, everyone's on their phone. If you're on if you're on a subway, if you're on a bus, if you're in line at the grocery store, but just having and, and so now everyone's kind of growing up and not knowing how to have a conversation with a random stranger. But you can do that by having a creative way of just like saying hi and getting people out of their cell phones and back into conversation. And I, that's what I really love because we don't, I mean, we have cell phones on the ship, but I've, I see that when we have these conversations, it's bringing that, that um, I don't know, that, that human aspect back because there's, I feel like with the phones these days, it's really doing a disservice for people having relationships. Oh, I agree, 100%. I tell everybody connection is the correction, you know, and that when we're so distracted and we, we don't know how to critically think. And so what you're reminding me of is the value of your ability to critically think through things because if something's going down and you're out there, no matter what it is, it's y'all. <laughs> it's the people on the boat taking care of whatever comes your way that could be challenging or difficult or anything, you have to be prepared for all of it as individually and as a team. So is there any time when that, it kind of got a little tricky out there and you, you knew that it was up to you and the people on the boat and what'd you do? Well, um, there is one, well, there is, we've had a couple of, um, of false, false alarms with fire and that's always scary because you know, we we do have a routine kind of with our drills, but when the alarm goes off at 6 p.m. and it's not a drill, um, that's that's pretty. Everyone's heart starts pumping then, and then we go right into our training mode of getting the comms out, getting dressed out, getting people. I'm on the investigation team, so I'm one of the first people that are sent to where any um, alarm is going off. But as far as we don't we haven't really had anything significant that i can think of besides let me think um i can't think of anything like engine loss or um there was one time that we were on my ship out of pascagoula we were coming out of the channel and there was a dredge that was just taking up the entire channel and we uh and there there's no there's no going outside of it for the draft of our ship so we had to uh do a really tight like 22 point turn just turn around because we we should have known that they were there um and make comms to establish a passing arrangement before we got out there but i forget there's something going on maybe with like Another, there was something else that was failing that was like that the CEO was just like we're going back we haven't gone out far let's just let's just turn around and go back I think that it was something with one of our comms or communication devices that wasn't 
operating well and that had that message had also gotten to the bridge so we we're just like let's just turn around let's make sure that everything's working well um yeah when i was out uh with the graze on a graze reef project the crane broke and so and we had two dive boats in the water but luckily we were only 18 miles from shore so we just made a convoy back and the dive boats just drove back with us so i haven't had anything particularly crazy that I can think of right now besides weather and besides helping the barrel guy <laughs> oh the barrel guy will yeah. you please share a part of your story about the barrel guy you know <laughs> that I am glad you brought him up I would have forgotten and then I would have gone oh no well I mean that was a significant experience and um and I'll try it. so long story short there's a uh he's a French adventurer 72, 76 years old, and he left um, from from France, from Guadeloupe, I don't know. He left from the west, that the other side of the pond, and he left in an orange fiberglass barrel that was the smallest thing I've ever seen. But he was posting on Facebook, um, and we got a maritime information text message, we'll say, that said, these are the coordinates of the last known location of this orange barrel. Please keep a sharp lookout. Mariners be advised. And we're like, what? There's a guy in an orange barrel. So I looked him up on the internet and I found that he is, um, he was doing this transatlantic cross at crossing and he was, had sponsors by a lot of environmental agencies. And then he, um, and so he had planned it from December 26th to March 1st. He thought it was only gonna take him three months. And we were departing Charleston, going to do work on oceanographic buoys on the west coast of Africa near Cape Verde and then coming back. And in that message, that text, that maritime text message, we'll call it, I noticed that we were only 60 miles away. So I found him on Facebook, messaged Facebook, turned out that that was handled by somebody in France that, and so through Google Translate, we were discussing his, if he had anything that he needed because he was severely delayed. Where we were, it was about maybe March 6th or March 8th, and so he's now three, like he's three months, he's at his three month mark of provisions that he brought with him. And I'm sure he brought extra, but like how much extra? Two thousand, another two thousand nautical miles extra, because that's how much he had to go. And so we, and so I, I told him I was like, you know, if we are able to meet with you on our way back, then, um, then I hope to be able to do so. But I couldn't make promises because I, I didn't know what, when, how, you know, two ships in the night are supposed to, or a ship in a barrel are supposed to reconnect on the huge ocean of the Atlantic. And, um, and so we, through a random set of circumstances that made it feel like this, this, was, this whole thing was meant to be, we were, we were headed straight for him on our way back to Charleston. And so uh, we got approval through NOAA headquarters to make this transfer provisions. Um, and, and it didn't take us out of our way. We were headed straight for them. And so we made a box and we put a bunch of food in there. We put chocolate and coffee and, and tea and fresh fruit and vegetables and everything that we could. We gave him a t-shirt 
and I wrote on there like bon voyage and make and um, like on a sheet of paper and then put a picture of our ship and had people sign it and laminated it for them and so we had this big care package and not to mention we did add some packaged tuna in case he wasn't sick of fish yet which was his, like primary diet you know don't don't leave him out of that that uh that tuna he needs that so anyway that's a joke everyone um <laughs> Anyway, so then, so then I was driving the ship. It was just so happened. It was perfect timing. It was 6 a.m., so the sun was up. It was a little. There were some sea swells. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that maybe realistically it was like five to six feet. But for the story, for the sea story, it was like 15 feet. It was huge. <laughs> so much swell. But I will tell you, luckily we had three people that spoke French. The, he only, the Jean-Jacques Savine is who we, we encountered in the orange barrel and he only spoke French. And so we had three people on board that spoke fluent French. And it was the, my mind when I saw that orange barrel come out to the horizon, number one, it was so small. Number two, it reminded me, is like, that's what you would look like if you were ever in a life raft is this little tiny speck on this big blue ocean, which was kind of, it was very humbling. And then um, we, and, and he was like shining a, a light at us and cause we couldn't, I mean, he doesn't come up on radar, you know? And I mean, maybe I think he should have gotten some like radar reflectors that doesn't take any power. Come on, dude. Um, but anyway, so I was driving the ship. We had to get into a Lee and I, um, and I was so nervous because I just started rolling through my head. If we hit, we need to come, we need to get him in the lead. We need to get him close enough. We need to like strap him up to the side of our ship so we can pass over provisions, pass over. We had water for him and we were going to take, we ended up taking some of the plastic garbage that he had collected on his drifting for three months. And um, I was like, if we hit it too hard, like if I hit it, me, it's me because it's me driving. And if we like smack this thing, what if it crumbles? What if we break something? He's got a long way to go. If we break something, now we got we got to bring this guy on board. And so, um, and then there's just so many aspects of it that I was like, oh my gosh, we're gonna end up on Washington Post. And um, so I was really nervous, but everything turned out fine. Uh, we transferred provisions, and we, like I said, we didn't we didn't anticipate taking up trash, but um, we were all really shocked at how much he had actually collected. And then um, and then he left and we all continued, and it was the talk of the town, or talk of the boat, for at least like two weeks just before we met him. And then it was the talk of the boat for the entire 10 day transit back to Charleston. And, um, and when he ended up being picked up sometime in April, he finally got close enough. And, um, and he did, you know, have immense thanks for the Ron Brown because it really did help to get him to where he wanted to go as far as being re-sustenance by chocolate and food and peanut butter. I mean, we just, we just gave him a whole bunch of stuff that we could so that he would be able to have some food and be able to maintain because he's yeah it was it was a really great story but it was hard for me to really enjoy that until the after aftermath <laughs> right after it was all done and everybody was safe and nothing yeah. happened <laughs> and nothing happened <laughs>
<laughs> oh my god but the, see that's the amazing part about being on the sea and being on the ocean and, and, and in any way we are is is that willingness on your part to follow it up to go on Facebook to send the message to do Google Translate to figure out a way to c connect with them on the way back to coordinate everybody and laminate a picture of the boat like all of that it comes natural to people who are on the water to other people who are on the water even if he speaks French and he's in a little orange barrel and he's <laughs> a nice big ship you know it doesn't really matter everybody's taking care of everybody else out there no matter what I don't know why but like my first instinct when I read his that article I was just like he's got he needs he's gonna need help yep. and we could do it and now we're gonna be miraculously sailing right next to him again and we should do it and my CEO at first was like oh no <laughs> but then he was like we have to we have to help he's gonna if we we all thought that if we didn't do this then he could have eventually turned into an emergency response and um, and I like to think that that little help helped it prevent to be an emergency response it sounds like it certainly was and the neat thing was it was your heart and your connection that stayed true to it all so there was no accident in my mind that you were driving the boat when it happened when you came across him that you were the one who did the research you were the one who reached out you were the one who helped spearhead it and you were the one who actually was piloting the vessel it happened on while my watch you did it. right there's no accident in any of yeah. that in my mind, Rachel, not even a little bit. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. That's, re <laughs> that's really amazing. So I've asked you a ton of questions, and you've been like so, so generous with all these really cool answers. I have goosebumps now. Is there anything that you wanted to say or talk about before we end the show? Um, well, can I just say one thing? Okay. So sailing. So, I mean, I'm, on, I'm obviously on, on motor vessels, and I know that there's a feud between sailing and motor vessels in some cultures, whatever. And I do like sailing, except I will say when I was young, my mom's sitting right next to me, but I will tell the story that she put me in that camp in Miami, and within two days, a boom smacked me on my head. I was so embarrassed. How old? I was maybe 11 or 12. I was so embarrassed. Then I skipped and I didn't go back to sailing camp for the rest of the week. And then my mom finally got a call and she was like, she hasn't been here. And then my mom's like, what are you doing with your day? You're not going to sailing camp? And I was like, I'm just walking around cooking a grove, mom. I don't want to go back to sailing camp. So I have done some sailing since. Um, but when I'm on a big bad research vessel and one thing that would help, I, that I'd, I just think that if you can afford as a sailing vessel, if you're doing a huge like cross Gulf of Mexico, cross the Atlantic or up and down, whatever, it would be so helpful if you had an AIS. And I don't know if you've talked to anybody about AIS or anything, um, but having that, because sailing vessels are wooden, they're small, sometimes they don't have a very good return if there's clouds. But if you have that AIS, it's a little green triangle that shows up on the radar. And it's so much, it makes me feel so much better that I know that there's a sailing vessel right there. And just because there's been a couple of times where they've just like kind of popped out of nowhere and then it freaks me out. <laughs> it doesn't freak me out. It's just like, oh my gosh. You know, I didn't, I didn't see you there. I didn't see the return, but then now there's a vessel. And now I have to think, okay, I thought that there was no vessel there. And now there is so my situational awareness just like went poof, you know, 
Exactly, and that's a really good point because safety is really important. And I've been out on the open water many, many, many times, and we always made sure we had the right reflectors and everything. And my that's mother, great. my mother, who was like a master navigator and yachtswoman, who was the one who spearheaded our whole family race together. And from the time I was very, very little, she was always about safety. And she says, we're going to have these safety things because those big boats need to be able to see us. And we don't need to have to make them try to figure out how to find us. They need to be able to see us easily. And so since I was little, we did that. And, and as I've grown, I've watched a lot of newer people on the water not necessarily take those kinds of safety measures as seriously as we did when I was younger. It's kind of like, oh, the GPS works. And I go, well, can you celestially navigate? Where are your paper charts? Help me out here. And people look at me like it's a trick. And I'm like, well, if your battery goes dead, how are you going to do you know how to dead reckon to get yourself back? Do you even know where you are? And my mom was a brilliant navigator and really instilled those kinds of messages into my brother and I and all the people who raced with us the whole time growing up and I have such gratitude for that so I'm glad you're bringing that up because it is important we're all out there on the water together and just because the boat you're you're steering now is a motor boat you're still sailing in the sense of being on the water and small sailing vessels need to understand that big boats also need to know what's going on like everybody needs to coexist without all this big extra drama so I'm really glad you brought that up yeah, I think the radar reflectors are some, something that, that'll help just catch that radar, not only for our ships, but cargo ships, because they have so, like, they have so much of a distance in front with their cargo that sometimes it's hard for them to see anything as well. So, I, but I don't, I don't work on a cargo boat, but yeah, I, that's the one thing that I always am cognizant of is the how sneaky sailors can be <laughs> and i think they're not even aware of it in fact you're just reminding me one time i was delivering a boat from davis island yacht club to st pete yacht club all i was doing was crossing tampa bay it was very late at night it was like 11 30 or 12 and another boat was with us and um and so i was going across and they were all like partying goofing off i said i said there's traffic coming down here and they can't see us and I was the one who convinced everybody to get it. We could go out of the channel to get out of the boat's way. And when the boat came by, I think it was a cargo boat. I'm trying to remember what it was. I'm not 100% sure. I said, but see the lights? The lights on that tell you that they're coming right. at us. And everybody's like, what, huh? I go, you don't know how to read running lights on an oncoming boat? You need to know how to do this. And if I hadn't been on there, they would have been, it would have been run over. And it was... Because you need to pay attention and respect each other's position in the water because that's the way it is. And I'm really glad you brought that up, Rachel. See, this is perfect. I'm so glad you are on this show. It's wonderful. So if there's a woman out there listening to us and they're thinking, well, maybe I might want to do something cool because those two are into it or maybe not or I'm a little afraid or, or do the guys really don't like the women, blah, blah, blah. What would you say to a woman who's kind of thinking about it and interested in hearing what you're having to say and going, ooh, I want to learn those kinds of things. What would you say to her? I would say go for it. There's nothing on the water. Like I, you mentioned like the men or whatever. I've, I don't, I've never encountered anything that made me feel like I don't deserve to be driving this boat. I mean, there's always in any workplace you have some some of that a little bit like condescending that we talked about before the podcast started, but um, which I think is just anywhere. But as far I've I've met so many women in the sailing world and in uh, the big boat driving world 
and also just in the recreational world with scuba diving, going on recreational boats. There's so many opportunities just to get out there and to learn to see what you can do. So the first step is just trying. And there's a lot of different volunteer opportunities with any, any aspect. You can get in nonprofit, you can get into the government with US Fish and Wildlife Service, you can get with academia. They always need volunteers. There's, um, there's just a wide avenue of getting out there, getting in the sun and getting on the water. So there you go, you can go after it just like Rachel did. So Rachel, thank you again for being on the show and sharing all this really cool stuff. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sorry for everyone. When I started, I was a little bit nervous, but just kind of sunk right in there, didn't I? Oh, <laughs> you, you did really, really well, and I really appreciate you being here. And remember everybody to keep your face to the sun, to remind yourself that goodness is out there on the water for all of us. And may you have fair winds and following seas. Until the next episode of the Sailing Legends podcast, be well.